to continue in the book of James. Uh, as we've been traveling through this book, I- I'm going to be honest with you, I've thoroughly enjoyed this sermon series because James is, is so practical. Like there's, there's just application that we can immediately step into and live out today. Like it's not one of those books where you're like, I'm not really sure how to apply it to our life. It actually hits home and it allows us to gain traction and move in our life. And for James, what he's concerned with, if we remember, he's writing to a church who's been persecuted. He's writing to a church that's been pressed out of their home, it's been forced to move, that's scattered, and now they're asking themselves all these kind of questions, and James as a pastor is writing to them. And he's writing in the midst of this tension where they have the promise of hope and joy, and yet they're experiencing suffering and pain. And so James acknowledges this human tension. And so he speaks in very black and white figures, but yet he acknowledges there's kind of this these, this matters that pertain to the heart that make it a little bit harder to understand. And so James runs after the human heart. And that's why if we continue to read in James 5, 8, he actually says, church, prepare your hearts. And so as a pastor, James is saying it's not just about your actions, but actually where your heart is. Prepare your hearts for the coming of the Lord. And so James acknowledges these tension. And today in the text, what we're going to see is a tension between humility and pride. And so James wants us to acknowledge that tension. There's a human tension or disposition to go towards pride, and then a divine call or a spirit-assisted, empowered humility. And and so James is saying, like, hey, let's acknowledge that this tension exists, and let's live in humility. And for James, what he's doing is he's taking the human heart and planting it in soil of humility, if you will. And he's saying, when pride pulls you out of that, the human heart dwindles and dies. And so for him, he's seeing the human life best lived out through a humble fashion. You guys tracking with me? Okay, so we're going to see this theme or this thread of pride and humility just tugging at our disposition. And so what I want to do is I want to go through pretty heavy, for those of you that keep track of time and actually are concerned about whether it's 15 minutes or 30 minutes, I'm going to be pretty long in 11 and 12, and you guys are going to be like, man, he's 20 minutes in, we've only been two verses, we still got 15 verses left, like we're going to, this is an hour and a half sermon, right, I just want to quell that, those of you that are concerned, and we'll, we'll get to the rest of it, but I want, to, I want to unpack and just show us how incredible verses 11 and 12, and then we'll walk through the rest of it. And we'll get a feel for almost a Proverbs-esque type of writing, okay? Are we good? Can we jump into the text? You guys ready? Okay, are we awake? I'm awake. I got like five cups of coffee in me. It's great. Learned something new this week, that coffee has more caffeine than espresso, and I feel robbed. Like, this doesn't make any sense. Like, I've been paying extra for espresso, and it's got less caffeine than coffee. So, uh, note to self, also my son Ryan, those of you who know him, he has had a cup of coffee today, so <laughs> that's going to be interesting. And so, if anyone falls asleep, he's going home with you. So, no sleeping, all right? All right. James 4.11 says this, do not speak evil against one another, brothers, The one who speaks against a brother or judges his brother speaks evil against the law and judges the law. But if you judge the law, you are not a doer of the law, but a judge. What James has just done is given us a mountain 
of theological truths and applied it to the human heart. I want to help us to interpret this by reading from Luke chapter 6. These are the words of Jesus. When he's teaching, Jesus says this, For no good tree bears bad fruit, nor again does a bad tree bear good fruit. Okay, so there's, there's a seed that gives birth and produces something, for each tree is known by its fruit. So for James and for Jesus, what we believe in here becomes manifested out here. For figs are not gathered for thorn bushes, nor are grapes from a, bram- a bramble bush. The good person out of a good treasure of his heart produces good. And the evil person out of evil treasure produces evil for the abundance of the heart. Now, church, look at that. The abundance of the heart, his mouth speaks. So for both James and for Jesus, what is in here, and for them, their heart and their mind were one. And so when they talk about the heart from a Jewish perspective, they're not delineating between emotion and thought. So for them, what's in here gets manifested out there. And so when James says, don't speak evil against your brother, what he is saying that what you speak is an indictment of what's in here. Are you tracking with me? So if we speak evil against a brother, what we've just said is there's evil within me. And when we speak judgment against a brother, what we've just said is there's judgment within me. And so James is saying, don't speak evil because what's in here should be manifested out here. And if you've received the grace of Jesus Christ, if you've come to Jesus and not received judgment, instead receive forgiveness, then what should be manifested is a love and a humility that gives forgiveness and love. Do you see the importance there? And so what we speak is a testimony against what we've received. And so if we speak judgment against our neighbor, then we testify that we ourselves have received judgment. And when we speak judgment against somebody, what we've assumed is a position of authority that is not our own. In, in our house, one of the things that we like is cookie dough. We go to the store and buy cookie dough. We don't buy cookie dough to cook it because that ruins it. <laughs> you put it in your fridge and you hope that you get to it before everyone else gets to it. And what I'll do is we have a vegetable drawer, true story, and if you tuck it underneath, (laughs) sometimes they don't find it. Close the drawer, but every now and then you'll hear the fridge and the drawer, and then it goes back real quick, and you'll come back and it's empty. Right, and it's not really a mystery to know like who had the cookie dough, because a lot of times it's on their face. It's in their hands, and you're like, hey, did you eat the cookie dough? And you're like, no, I didn't, I didn't eat it. You're like, come on, listen. I'm not mad at you. I'm kind of envious. Like, I wanted some cookie dough. I specifically went to the store just for the cookie dough, and you got to it before me. And so I just want to know, is it good? Should we buy it again? And they're like, I didn't, I didn't eat the cookie dough. Right? And, and what I love is, so you have an innocent kid in front of you. And I don't, I don't want to speak negatively of my kids. So I asked Stephanie if it's okay for me to share this. What happens a lot of times is there's a witness that will testify against their sibling. And they're like, no, she ate the cookie dough, he ate the cookie dough. And you're sitting there and you're like, I just, I know, like it's on his face, I see it, right? Like he's not fooling anyone, he ate the cookie dough, I get it. But then what happens is their, their witness will then begin to say, you ate the cookie dough and you shouldn't have eaten the cookie dough. 
And, and then they'll go a step further. And, and you, you should be in trouble because you ate the cookie dough. And so what happens is their sibling, rather than just being a sibling and being there and watching the interaction, becomes a, a, a witness against them, but then actually begins to assume a role of parenting. And so what happens a lot of times in our house is I have people who think they're helping me as parents, and what they don't understand is they're assuming a role or posture or an authority that's not theirs. And so I'll tell my kids, in a very loving way, stay out of this. If they continue, I've actually said this before, if you think my parenting is inadequate, we'll talk about that later, but I need to talk to your sibling here. And so in other words, I don't need you to be a brother, I need you to be a brother or sister, you don't have to be their mom and dad, and worry about how I discipline them. The way I discipline them is between me and them. It was my cookie dough that they ate. I purchased it. It was my money. It's my offense. And if I want to give grace and say, I'm glad you had it, or if I want to give judgment, that's between me and them. And yet sometimes what happens is their sibling begins to offer parenting advice, which is an indictment upon my ability to parent. It's, it's a testimony against me. And so what, Je- what James is saying is don't judge your brother because it's not just a testimony against you, but a testimony against God's parenting. And so what you're saying is, God, you're not doing an adequate job. Let me help you by judging these people. You understand what I'm saying? And so when we judge, we assume an authority position that is not ours. But here's the beautiful thing, church. This isn't just a condemnation. We don't have to judge people. The weight of judgment isn't yours and it's not mine. Jesus has set us free from having to judge people. Do you think about just a human judge that has to sit between two parents and decide who does the kid go and live with? Think about that weight. I am so glad I have never had to make that decision. I I couldn't. That's a weight that I don't want. And so God is saying you don't have to bear the responsibility and weight of judgment. Instead, there is one true judge. And that's what he says as we read in verse 12. Look at this, church. It says, there is only one lawgiver and judge. That's Jesus Christ himself who is able to save and destroy, but who are you to judge your neighbor? And so James is running at the human heart, and he's saying out of the overflow of what's in here will either come grace and humility and love or judgment and condemnation. And so depending on what you have received, you will bear the fruits of that reality in the world. And so James is saying Jesus has freed you up, and if you remember in chapter 2, he said the royal law is to love your neighbor. Think about this, church. I know everybody's got that neighbor you could, you could live without. <laughs> like they're the people that make you want to move. They're the people that you think about often. And he's saying, don't judge them. He, he's saying God has freed you up from judgment. He has freed you up to love them. Your, your commission is to love them. Even if you recognize and see how they could better their life, your commission is to love them. 
Now, I know a lot of us in here are hearing this, and we're thinking, you know, I don't, I don't really have a disposition to judge. You know what I love about good teachers is good teachers tend to teach from that which they themselves have processed. And, and so James has processed or worked through that human disposition to judge. And as a teacher, I myself am prone to judge. You know many times I've sat with men, and I'm like, just get it together. Like, your wife just wants to go to dinner. It's not that complicated, man. Like, stop going fishing. You've already been fishing 10 times this week. Just buy her a rose. I'm like, you know, and, and I'm judging them because I'm like, just get it together. Or how many times I've sat with Christians who have been in the faith for 20, 30 years, and I'm like, how do you not know this yet? And you see the self-righteousness that's coming out. Like, as a pastor, I'm like, what is going, like, where's my patience? Jesus, why am I saying that you haven't done a good enough job in these people's life? Why, why am I indicting your parenting? And the reality is, for me, it's primarily comfort. Like, I want people to have it together so I have an easier time pastoring. Like, there's all kinds of sin that needs to be fleshed out. And so when James says, don't judge, he's not saying something that's foreign to what you and I experience. You know, what I love about the Bible is just that it is incredibly sophisticated and advanced. Like, it is the most sophisticated psychological book that exists. When I read this, my first thought was, there's nothing new under the sun. <laughs> nothing. And James says, don't judge, because you're saying that you're the, the, the judge, the lawgiver. One of the appealing things about our modern-day theological teaching, if we look at evolution from a, a moralistic standpoint, it says that laws are relative. So what that means is that laws are a social construct, that you and I decide whether or not something is right or something is wrong. So we could say, if we wanted to, if it's a social construct, that it's okay to steal. Or we could even go as far as to say it's okay to rape if it's a social construct. Scripture says that there is an absolute law that cannot be changed because the lawgiver has written that law, not just down in God's word, but on our hearts. The appeal to a relative law is we get to be God. So if laws are relative, then we are God. And James is saying there is no, you, you're not, there's one lawgiver. And that's humbling, isn't it? Because it's such an easier path. If we look at self-righteousness and pride to say, man, I, I'm, I'm God. Like, I get to decide what is right and what is wrong. And the, the underlying reality for that is, is if we digest or eat or consume that which we think we've prescribed for ourselves as good, it becomes to be detrimental to us. And so there is one lawgiver and one judge, and that is Jesus Christ himself. And James is saying, I want you to simply love your neighbor. Amen. Church, that is remarkably difficult to do. The human disposition is to judge. We notice distinction, but the reason we notice that is because of what's happening in us. And so if we've received Jesus' grace and his mercy, then an, out of an overflow of that, our neighbors should receive Jesus' grace and his mercy. Yes. 
And so what James is saying is here's an internal manifestation of what's going on. And then and he continues how that plays out in our heart and mind. I want to show us what James says, how this heart disease, if you will, will, will impact us. In verse 13, he says, Come now, you who say today or tomorrow we will go into such and such town and spend a year there and trade and make a profit. I read that and I go, man, how many people have been swept away by a poor business venture, a promise of profit, right? Like how many people have said, if I invest in this, I'm going to make money? And so what James is saying, the greatest, the, the, the unfortunate reality to pride is that it brings about a self-deception, which causes you and me to have a false security and hope in things of this world. And then he unpacks it a little bit more, and he says, yet you do not know what tomorrow will bring. What is your life? For you are a mist that appears for a little time and vanishes. Man, that is humbling. Incredibly humbling to realize our time here on this earth is limited. I was just, I was talking to Matt this morning about how, like once you turn like 30 and 35, I mean, it's just like, I don't know how, like, some of you guys, those of you guys, I know you guys are further along than me, how you guys do it? Like, I'm like, it's painful to get out. It, it hurts to get out of bed. I'm like, man, how? It does. Yeah. Every That's what I'm saying. I read this, and I, our life is but a mist. You realize how short it is, how vulnerable we are. There's no guarantee of tomorrow, and yet pride says there's a guarantee in tomorrow, and humility says the only guarantee there is is a hope in Jesus Christ. Amen. And the reality is we all are but a short mist, and if we live with that, you can't but be humble. He continues in verse 15, Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will do this or that. And so what James isn't saying is that it's wrong to have plans. What he's saying is if you have plans that are not dependent upon Jesus Christ, then you have a very prideful pursuit that's going to lead to destruction. And so when we make plans, what we say is, if God shows up, this will happen. If God doesn't show up, it doesn't happen. As it is, 16, you boast in your arrogance all such boasting is evil. So whoever knows the right thing to do and fails to do it, for him it is sin. Now what James has just said is something that's profound. He's taken the black and white and put it internalized into our heart because if we are called to love God with our heart, soul, and mind and to love our neighbor as ourselves, and we don't do that, what he's just said is that's sin. And remember, he just said, if we see those who are poor and don't clothe them, then that's sin. And so it's not just a matter of not doing something. In this instance, it's a matter of not loving your neighbor in the way that you're called. And so there is a season or a time where our pride says, no, and we've sinned. So he's kind of said, this is the internalization. This is what happens in your heart when you allow pride to consume you. And then he gives us the fruit of it in 5, 1 through 6. And so I want you to see the manifestation of what happens in our life. In verse 1, he says, Come now, you rich, weep and howl, for your miseries are coming upon you. So if pride were a tree, the fruit is right here. 
Your riches have rotted and your garments are moth-eaten. It's like, man, that, that shirt's only like a year old. Like with kids, everything gets ruined. I was giving away a shirt the other day that was brand new because we washed it one time. I think I wore it one time. And, and it was given away brand new. And one of my kids had it for like 30 seconds. And I hand it to him. I said, it's brand new. And there's stains on it. I'm like, how did the stains? I mean, it was literally just like, this doesn't make any sense. It was brand new before I handed it to you. So our garments, like, they go by quick. And I read that. I'm like, it must have been in my family. And then verse 3, I love this. Your gold and your silver have corroded, and their corrosion will be evidence against you. I think of the parable of the talents. God hasn't given us wealth to keep and hoard. Instead, he's given it to us to use. And so when we take that gold and silver and we find security in it, there's, there's inherent evil in that. Instead, Jesus has said, use it. And sometimes we use it to love our neighbor, to clothe the naked, to care for those whom Jesus himself cares for. And he says, Behold, the wages of the laborers who mowed your fields, but kept you back by fraud, are crying out against you, and the cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord. You have lived on the earth in luxury and self-indulgence. You have fattened your hearts in a day of slaughter. Do you see how pride brings about a selfish pursuit that runs over our peers? You can't read that and say, man, they were loving their neighbor. And then verse 6, he says something that's truly an indictment. He says, you have condemned or murdered the righteous person, and he does not resist you. I think of Jesus on the cross, who didn't resist or condemn you and me, and yet our sins put him there. And church, we have a Savior who didn't judge you. He didn't look upon you and say, your, tins are, your sins are evil. How could you? Instead, he looked upon you as a son or daughter, and he brought you back. You stood before him convicted with the evidence on your face, and even when people spoke as witnesses against you, Jesus still thought to bring you back into his fold. And that's humbling. It's humbling to admit that we have sinned and we're in need of a savior, that we're not the lawgiver or the judge, but it's freeing to admit that we have forgiveness, we have mercy, we have reconciliation, and we don't have to be the lawgiver and judge. Instead, we've been freed to love our neighbor in the way that Jesus longs for us to love our neighbor. But we have to be honest with the human tension to want to judge. We have to, because it is a wrestle. James is saying, this is what you're going to wrestle with. And so as we look at this passage as a church, and we say, what's the application for us this week? Well, I put it in your bulletin. I want to make it really simple so you can take it, and you can walk home with it. This, this is Easter week. It's the week where we celebrate the resurrection of Jesus Christ and the hope that we have in it. And everything that James is saying, you could read that and you can go home, pop up the recliner and say, I'm doing good. I ain't judging anyone today. Right here by myself, got my iced tea, I'm doing good. Everything James is saying is fleshed out in community. And so I want to call you guys into community. Because when you step into community, you're going to find out really quick what's in here. You invite somebody who doesn't know Jesus. Invite somebody of a different age, and you're going to find out really quick. It's a wrestle sometimes to love people. It, it takes work. It takes a dependency upon Jesus, our Savior, to say, God, would you help me to love them in the way that you want me to love them? And so I want to call you guys into inviting your coworker to lunch, inviting your neighbor 
over to your house. Talking to somebody, inviting them to your city group, and extending an invitation to worship with us here on Sunday. But I want to invite you guys into community. And when you do that, if you do that, I am certain there will be a disposition or a wrinkle in your heart that will flare up, and you'll begin to say, man, I'm judging them. Jesus, why am I judging them? And then you get to experience the grace and the sanctifying work of our spirit in your life and begin to love them as he's called you to love them. So church, let us pursue community this week because Jesus has called us to love our neighbor. Heavenly Father, we love you. We thank you so much, Lord. I thank you that you are the lawgiver and the judge, and yet you've chosen to give us mercy. You've chosen to give us forgiveness. You call us your sons and your daughters. Lord, I'm blown away by that grace. I thank you for that grace. I thank you that each person in here can come to you and find a Savior. I pray for each person that's in here that's wrestling with judgment. Maybe they're thinking there's judgment from the Father. I just ask that the Spirit would be gracious to them and you would say there is no judgment. There is grace and forgiveness. That they would find from a Father a love and affection to call them their own. So would the Spirit work within us right here, right now, in this place? Would people say they've come before the face of a Father, they've worshipped Jesus this morning, they've experienced the grace that can only come from you working in our life? Lord, I pray that you would transform hearts and minds in this place right now. That the Spirit would be at work dispelling lies that Satan has told us. That where we feel like you are far off, you would reveal how close and near you are. Lord, could we know that our sin hasn't separated us from you? Instead, the incredible, wondrous work of Jesus has brought us back into an eternal relationship with you. Right here in this place, could the Spirit speak truth to us? We pray and we ask this, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.